Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Welcome back to Your Family Dog podcast. I'm Tina Spring, and I'm joined by my co-host today, Julie Fudge-Smith, and we're stoked to have Dr. Ryan Yomkin with us. Um, He has a huge, long list of credentials, which we will provide for you in the notes for this podcast, but let me give you kind of the Cliff Notes version. So he has a PhD in animal science. His master's and his um, PhD work was specifically on canine nutrition. He's a board-certified companion animal nutritionist um, and have been richly blessed by his sharing of knowledge. And we thought we would would bring that to all of the families who listen to us to talk specifically about how do we improve our dog's nutrition? What do we need to know about nutrition to help our furry family members be happy and healthy? So uh, thank you very much for being here, Ryan. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to uh, spend some time with us at Your Family Dog. My qu- There's a couple of things that we want to uh, talk about, but I think let's talk about basic canine nutrition to begin with. Um, what can, uh, what should owners, I mean, there's so much, there's so many foods out there. There's so much information, good, bad. Um, you know, do I have to be worried about dog sensitivity to particular ingredients? Do I need to go, you know, grain free? What, what do you, how do, how would somebody, if they want to just give good basic nutrition to their dog and maybe improve what they're doing, what kind of suggestions would you have for that owner? Yes, I think um, it's a good question. It's actually a question that I get a lot. Um, The first thing I always tell people is try to educate yourself as much as possible. Um, There's lots of good resources out there um, on the internet as well as at your local retailer or even asking a veterinarian. Um, But at some point when the decision-making process comes into play, the pet owner, pet parent, uh, you know, have guardian, whatever you'd like to call them, depending on your, your, who you're talking to, they have to become their own advocate for their pet. And it's no different. Um, and, you know, I overlay it with uh, human medicine is, you know, at some point you have to have the discussion and be able to challenge the people that are giving you the information no different than you would for your own health. So if somebody says, hey, you have high cholesterol, go on this meds. Well, what is my other option? Well, you could exercise and lose 20 pounds. Well, okay. Well, now I have the choice to say, hey, I I need to get off my butt and get on the treadmill and I don't have to live a life on meds or I take the meds. Um, Well, it's no different when it comes to uh, animal nutrition. And so once you do the homework and somebody's telling you, you need to do X, Y, and Z, um, you should be able to ask the right questions at the very least, you don't have to be an expert in nutrition, but you have to be able to ask the right questions. Absolutely. Um, and, so, and so when somebody, whether it's a retailer, or veterinarian, best friend, breeder, um, all those potential influencer points, um, you have to be able to ask why. Um, and then once you are able to get your questions answered, then it really comes down into lifestyle as well as price point. Um, and so you know, I'm a big believer in education, uh, not humiliation or advocation. Um, and so what I mean by that is I'll t- give people the tools to ask the right questions, to get 
a firm grounding on what they want to do, what they want to feed. But if your price point is purina dog chow, well, I'm not going to tell you you're a horrible parent and humiliate you for it. And I'm not going to advocate, you know, the super duper premium brand either because I don't know what your feeding situation is. And the other part that a lot of people don't recognize or get into or, or you know, um, think about is a lot of the stuff is lifestyle driven uh, decisions. And so, for example, you'll have a lot of veterinarians out there that say, you know, hey, there's only one breed of dog that has gluten sensitivities. Well, lots of times when you see people make gluten free claims on the bag, it has nothing to do with the dog and dog sensitivities. It could have everything to do with you know what, in my family, I have an eight-year-old boy that has celiac disease, and you know what, I want to ha- be able to have a puppy or a, or a cat. Um, and being that we're a gluten-free household, why should I have to bring in a dog food or a potential interaction point for, you know, the family that's living the gluten-free lifestyle? And so there's lots of foods out there, and if you think about it, organic, right, uh, humanely raised um, and a lot of those things that are out there really start becoming lifestyle choices and decisions versus is it better nutrition or not? I think that's a really good point. And, and certainly um, I, I hadn't thought of it that way that, you know, a gluten-free family may want to continue that because they don't want their kid to interact with it. Um, and, you know, the, a lot of these labels are directed towards these owners and the sensitivity. And, and certainly I am as much of a of a victim of that per se than uh, than anyone else because I go for the humane humanely raised because that's an important issue for me. So I think it's really important to understand that you're talking about just not just dogs nutrition but lifestyle choices for everyone. I think that's a really good point. So um, with that in mind, um, if uh, are, are there certain supplements or things that dog, people can do that would help to improve a dog's health, overall health, no matter what they're feeding? Yeah, I mean, just like with human nutrition, right, you can always, um, I'll say, give give certain foods a boost, if you will. Um, obviously, uh, you'll have a lot of raw food advocates out there that'll tell you, um, and rightfully so, that um, you know, whole raw foods are unprocessed, therefore better, no different than, you know, human nutrition. Um, but you know, you could simply, if you think about it, your human nutrition lifestyle, right? Hey, blueberries are good for you because they got certain flavonoids in there and antioxidants and things of that nature. Well, you could give blueberries to a dog. Um, carrots have, you know, beta carotene and, and other goodies in there. Well, you could give carrots to a dog. And so, um, you don't necessarily have to go all the way to that super high price point if you can't afford it. But you know what? If you're if you have carrots and you're eating carrots, feel free to give your dog a carrot um, and blueberries and, and and such. And so you know you don't have to be rigid in how you supplement. You could be simply doing, hey, they're part of the family type of supplementation. Um, obviously, when they get into um, certain age brackets and things of that nature. Um, you could always talk to your veterinarian or somebody else, but you know, if you start seeing a dry flaky coat, for example, um, lots of times I'll tell people just simply put a tablespoon of, uh, vegetable oil on top. Um, or if you want to, you know, um, obviously you don't want added oil to it, but you know, if you need omega threes once in a while, give them a can of tuna. Um, you know, you don't want to give them tuna all the time because 
they're at the same risk as humans would be because of mercury and things of that nature, just because they're, you know, top of the, the food chain. Um, but from that standpoint, you, you know, you could do a lot of simple things at home. Um, and a simple usual remedy is, hey, if they're not getting enough omega-6s or omega-3s, is simply adding, you know, that regular vegetable oil that you have in your cupboard, um, in, you know, across the top of the food. And so there's lots of things you could do um, at a certain point you know, might be beneficial when they start getting arthritic, doing glucosamine, chondroitin supplementation. And there's lots of good products out there as well. Um, and if you're not sure what dosage, obviously, that's something that you can always talk to your veterinarian about. They should be able to do the the quick math based off dog size and all that good stuff to tell you, you know, if it's dependent on the product, it, is it a scoop over the food or is it, you know, the the tablet or capsule? Um, but there's, you know, th depending on what's going on, um, you know, you can you can always add a little more. Um, and, you know, antioxidants never hurt anybody. Uh, and mm -hmm. obviously in moderation, you can at some point tip the scale. But, you know, if you're giving them blueberries or strawberries or whatever, you know, as part of what you're eating or broccoli, even, you know, there's there's added benefits to those to, to the critters as well. Cats are a little bit trickier because obviously they, they play on texture um, and food form a little more. Um, and to put that in perspective, you can have the same type of kibble. And if it's 8% moisture versus 6% moisture, um, going up to that 8 is actually enough to reduce palatability in cats. Um, so wow. they get a little more here. So uh, typically with cats, um, you got to start them out early as kittens with introductions to new foods and stuff. So they get used to it. Um, you know, and make it part of their lifestyle. And sometimes like they kids. just don't get it. They're exactly like kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, so our you cat, can, go ahead. Our cat, our cat um, was struggling with weight and we were already on really high quality um, feed and had reduced it back and reduced it back. And eventually one of my vets said, okay, let's switch to wet. And then it was, okay, you know what? She actually said to me, I can't believe I'm going to say this. Let's switch him to raw. And it's been unbelievable. The difference in body condition for this cat, like that last bit of weight that we were struggling to get off of him. We got off of him. His like everything changed. His body condition changed. He thinks he's a puma. Um, so I was really <laughs> like, we, we, he, I had always been careful about his nutrition, but we had slowly moved toward things that were hopefully safer for kidney disease. Cause that's such a big issue in, in the cats and getting weight off of them. And it was really, um, pretty stark, the difference in how he looked once he went onto a freeze dried raw diet. It was, it was amazing. Now he's more expensive to feed than our four dogs combined, but, sure. um, I easily could feed our four dogs food that usurped and eclipsed the cost of feeding the cat too. So Ryan, you talked about some online resources. Can you either here in the call point us to some or give us kind of a short list that we can do as an addendum in the notes for for good, reputable sources? Because I think I worry a little bit about, you know, on the Internet, you can read all sorts of craziness. Sure. I'd like to try to provide credible. Yeah, so um, 
There's one, um, it, there's a couple of chapters that would be beneficial um, to, to read. And one of them, uh, it's not because I wrote it either. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you actually go to, um, and, and you can download it, the PDF uh, free, um, but this book right here, um, Small Animal Clinical Nutrition, uh, fifth edition, um, there's actually a chapter in there where I was co-author on, it's called Macronutrients. Um, and I can tell you really quick what chapter it is. Um, it is, bear with me here. When your wife's arguing with you about something, do you go, hey, I wrote the chapter in this desk reference she she, she doesn't care um you know even though i got uh it's actually chapter five so um okay. that when you do look when you look for it if you go to um the mark morris institute uh page you should be able to download the pdf for free um but more importantly the way um i wrote that chapter it, it's literally kind of supposed to be a textbook so it's it's at a level where people can read it and understand it and it's not over your head um the other one um which is a, a good resource um she does online seminars um is linda case um and she does uh she she does a basic companion animal one and she'll do carbohydrates and stuff like that uh the thing that's good about um the chapter that i wrote and what um, Linda does is she does it strictly from a uh, uh, educational standpoint. Um, and if you actually look her up, she's actually written a few books, uh, canine nutrition and feline nutrition as well. Um, but if you do the online webinar um, and sign up for that, that, it's a great resource where you'll get unbiased information. Um, and again, it gets you back to what I discussed earlier. Um, it educates you to the level where you can start asking the right questions, doing your own homework and making your own best decision on what to feed your dog. And more importantly, be able to sort through um, the BS that's out there from marketing claims and things like that. Right. And so what do I mean by that is. If you walk into a PetSmart today or Petco or pick any pet store, really, but PetSmart's probably the best example. Um, every bag of dog food these days has a wolf on it. Um, and <laughs> you know what? Wolves, wolves don't eat product that has 40 to 50 percent carbohydrate in there. But yet you, they're using those marketing terms to tell you it's protein rich, meat rich and stuff like that. Well, there's no definition for that. Right. And so that's a puffery or marketing claim. But if you know enough to say, hey, my dog needs to eat this amount of protein or this type of protein and stuff like that. Well, now you start learning and advocating for yourself to look for certain ingredients that are there or not there um, in some cases. And then you, you can make those lifestyle choices, uh, you know, on your own. Um, but there's a lot of good foods out there. Uh, obviously, once you get the basics down, um, you know, many people could become their own advocates, just like they are for their own health, uh, health when they're eating foods. Hello, puppy. Sorry, <laughs> coming and saying hello. Hello, Marco. <laughs> um, so he says he likes the vegetables and the fruits and the meat that Ryan is recommending. He, um, I think what he's saying is I heard food. 
I was gonna, when you were talking about supplementing um, your dog's uh, food, one of the things I tell people when, um, you know, I, I'm like, you know, it's okay to give your dog some boiled chicken as treats or use carrots or whatever. It's, it's, if they're in their dog food, it's not like they're raising chickens to put for, you know, these are just dog food chickens or these are human chickens. It's, what you're doing is you're literally giving them. It's yeah. going out different door. Um, and, and that's what a lot of people don't realize that uh, uh, if we were in the U.S., if we were a society that like Egypt, I, I use Egypt because I've been there before. Uh, but, you know, they love fried lip, chicken livers there. Um, and that's everyday stable here. It's not. So it ends up in pet food. Right. Right. Um, if it was. It's, so it's not like they're treating that chicken liver different because it's going into pet food. What they do is they put it off to the side and it goes out, I'll say, door B instead of door A to go to the grocery stores, right? And then when right. it goes to B, it ends up going to pet food. And so you don't necessarily follow all the quality chain as you would for human food. But to your point, that that chicken liver or that chicken meat is no different than or should be no different. Um, obviously, there's certain companies that, uh, you know, give the industry a bad name. And, you know, for legal reasons, I won't name them. Um, obviously, people can see who has the most recalls and what kind of euthanasia drugs are in their foods and stuff like that. But the, the industry, by and large, um, follows at that separation point from human food. It follows that quality control, be, basically because of the Food Safety Modernization Act. Um, and so we follow a lot of practices that, um, you know, the human food supply chain does. Right. So it's kibble or whatever else they're making with it. Right. And people we'll get concerned that, um, well, if I feed my dog human food, then he'll learn to beg. I'm like, and I can teach your dog to beg at the table using kibble, man. Uh, it's, it's, yep. it's location, location, location. But when you're saying that, Absolutely. like this morning, um, my dog shared my banana from my cereal. You know, they just love banana. So everybody gets a couple pieces of banana. And, um, you know, if, if, if I drop some blueberries on the ground or I throw them some carrots, oh, green beans are another favorite among, I found out amongst my dogs. Um, so I kind of feel like none of this stuff is going to, well, there are certain fruits that will harm them, like ra no raisins, no grapes. Um, Correct. But things like, you know, blueberries and carrots and green beans and uh, all this stuff, it makes a nice, the other thing is it makes a nice locale snack as well. So if it you does. have a dog that has weight issues, but you need a treat, carrots and green beans are great ways to go. Um, and they're not going to cause any, any problems. And my dogs love them both raw and cooked. So, um, Absolutely. as far as, um, I know that there's so many issues today about whether or not we should be feeding dogs carbohydrates. And I was wondering if you could address that issue because that is just seems to be a hot button right now. Yeah. So, um, uh, unfortunately this is where, um, emotion, uh, loses to science. Right. Um, and, and so what, what do I say that uh, what do I mean is lots of times um, people start having the emotional debate versus, you know, hey, what's the science of the dog and can they handle it and so on and so forth. Um, the, the reality of it is, is um, they can handle it. Uh, they can digest it. You can make a food that's very highly digestible. Uh, with carbohydrates, but the reality of it is, is do they need them? Um, the answer is, with the exception of some 
glucose that's required for, you know, brain activity and stuff like that, um, that, you know, that they can be primarily on a, on a low, uh, carbohydrate food. Um, the, the reality of it is, is because of the kibble industry and how it was designed and, and keep in mind the extruders that we use today were literally back in the day, the same extruders and they are to some extent today that you make cereal out of, right? And so they weren't designed really to be pumping out meat cubes. Um, they were designed to make carbohydrate puff type stuff. And um, I hate to use the analogies of, of either corn puffs or Fruit Loops, but you know, you, it's similar textures, if you will, and puffiness. But to hold that kibble together, um, typically you have to be 25% or better carbohydrate in that, in that kibble. Um, and that's by design. And when you actually look at different kibble structures, um, and you can see the size of the kibble, usually the bigger puffier ones by design are going to have higher carbohydrate, uh, content in there. And when they're doing that, yes, that carbohydrate can be utilized by the dog or the cat, but it's really there for food science reasons. And so if somebody tells you, hey, uh, I've formulated this amount of carbohydrate because it's for the dogs or cats benefit, uh, you know, I'm, I'm willing to call BS on that because, you know, they couldn't make that kibble if there wasn't that much carbohydrate in there. Um, and that's just the reality of it. Now, when you get into other food forms, um, you're not going to see by design that much carbohydrate in there because they don't need it. Um, and so if you see, obviously, a raw food, they're going to make it. It is what it is. And it's a patty or whatever, and it gets frozen. Or they make it into a chub, it like, and it looks like you know, ground beef for argument reasons, argument sakes. And then freeze-dried as well, they cold extrude it, and then they form it, and it is what it is. And so they don't need it to have those characteristics either. Um, and so lots of times when you see um carbohydrate in either a raw or freeze-dried type of material um they're using it because it's actually supplying vitamins and minerals and not necessarily the carbohydrates or sugars um okay. and so you're not gonna so when you see for argument's sake um and i'll use our food as an example um you know when you see sweet potatoes on my uh, ingredient list i can tell you today that it's at 3.5 percent uh, the rest of the product uh, below that is there, obviously, for uh, vitamins and minerals, and I'm at 80, 85% meat in the product. I don't need it because it gets cold formed, and then it gets freeze-dried, um, and it obviously holds its shape. But if I was doing that in an extrusion situation, I would have to go higher carbohydrate. Um, now, there are certain groups out there that are starting to look at the research of, you know, is raw better healthier than kibble diets and things of that nature but there's really no data scientifically to date there's a lot of anecdotal data um you know better coat quality uh smaller stool volume things of that nature um but typically for argument's sake with that much carbohydrate uh comes much more fiber um and as a result you actually decrease digestibility and so consequently you, you actually have to feed more kibble than if you were feeding raw or freeze-dried foods okay well that that is a lot of information um but good information <laughs> I, I just kind of think it's most of the stuff that most people haven't really thought about 
they don't really know how their the, how food is formed, um, and the options that they have can be very confusing. And they think to themselves, well, you know, I, I it's not that I don't want the best for my dog, but my last dog did pretty well on this stuff, so you know, why shouldn't this dog do well on this? So the um, the other thing I wanted to 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 ask you about was um, the reason for exotic ingredients, like for example. Um, Signature, I think it is, offers um, a food that has the the meat source is basically kangaroo, or there's goat, or there's you know a variety of exotic meats. Um, and I know that people will think, oh, um, maybe I should move in that direction. But I was wondering, my my thought on that is, if your dog is not having problems with standard food such as pork, beef, or chicken. Um, and it's just adjusting if I'm not showing any sensitivities, maybe you should save the exotic foods for the chance that your dog may develop a sensitivity to more common products. Because if you use it now and your dog develops a sensitivity, you're losing options for the future. So I was wondering what you thought about some of these exotic ingredients. So I would say you're spot on with what you just said. Um, so, you know, I, I, I really can't elaborate on that part of it. Um, so yes, I, I do agree. Um, the unfortunate thing is, you know, certain companies have come out with exotics, which do make it harder for, um, you know, if, now if you create a sensitivity for duck, for example, or venison or rabbit or, you know, alligator, you know, pick your exotic, um, it gives you less tools in that toolbox to play with to try to, you know, um, unless you go to a hydrolyzed, crazy expensive food from uh, the therapeutic side. Um, but if you watch how the industry has evolved, um, and I'll use 2007 really as the starting point, because that's when we had the melamine recall. Mm -hmm. um, prior to that, uh, whether people want to admit it or not, they were more willing to feed corn, wheat, and soy in their products, right? And at that time uh, in, in the world, you know, Hills and Imes and Yukonuba were considered the super premium food or ultra premium or whatever kind of category you want to throw them into. Um, and after that time point, when people realized that, hey, they're, not only are, you know, people using the same ingredient in that premium food as they are in the grocery food, um, and more importantly, the same manufacturers, they started looking at ingredients very differently. Um, and so, you know, certain companies like Blue Buffalo, you know, pushed on the accelerator and took off and started pushing no corn, wheat, soy, um, as, as did others. And then they focused on other grains like oats and barley. Um, and then the independent stores, those those uh, foods that were in there were going, well, hey, I need to be more unique than them. And then you started seeing grain-free come on a circuit. Um, and then it got to everybody caught up with grain-free that it got to the point people started saying, well, I don't have white potatoes. Uh, I just have sweet potatoes. And now it's, hey, I only got legumes. I don't have uh, any of those carbohydrates. And at the same time when they were doing that, they were also playing that game with different novel exotic proteins. And so, hey, you know what? I got to justify my existence now by having a kangaroo diet or a venison diet or a bison diet or or vegetarian or goat, as, as you mentioned. Um, and so it really became more of a sales and marketing point of differentiation versus it being, hey, it's it's, you know, is this really better for your pet? Um, not that it was worse for your pet. 
but they were trying to justify their reason for existence and why they were unique and novel um, as companies. Okay. Um, Tina, do you have a question? I feel like I've been monopolizing things here. So a, a question I have, Ryan, is are there some good rules of thumb? For example, when we talk about human food and nutrition, we talk about there should be a lot of color on the plate. Sure. Um, is is there a, a good rule of thumb with regard to that for our dogs? Um, there... There, there is, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, um, you know, not using artificial colors, uh, and flavors and things of that nature. Um, you know, they're, they're not there for the benefit of the animal. Um, and one great example that I always use is, is iron oxide. Um, if you're not familiar with iron oxide, naturally it's rust. Um, it's actually also used, uh, for dye and paint, uh, in addition to food. But when people see iron oxide on a label, they think it's a source of iron for the dogs. And the reality of it is, is iron oxide has zero bioavailability to that animal. It's strictly there to add color to the food. Um, and if you think about it, um, if it has no bioavailability, it's just going to pass right through. And, you know, and God forbid, depending on which iron oxide it is, if you're dog or cat ends up vomiting on the floor, chances are your carpeting is now going to be red or whatever color iron oxide they're using. Um, and so by design, it's there for tinting and, and, and staining, if you will. Um, and so I try to stay away from recommending foods that have uh, artificial colors uh, and flavors in there. Try to stick to, um, as I say, you know, there, there are, um, anybody getting into the world of food today, um, you know, if they're not meeting a couple of hurdles, you're already at a, at a competitive disadvantage. And, and that's a being meat first, um, B being natural. Um, obviously not everybody's going to be hundred percent natural. They'll be natural with added vitamins and minerals. Um, but beyond that meat first, what I typically look for is, you know, and then a good indicator is, you know, how much meat is going to be in that product is, you know, well, what's coming in after that? Well, if I end up seeing a lot of plant protein sources or meat protein sources like meals, um, then I know they're playing the meat game from a marketing standpoint. And then you got to question, OK, well, what am I paying for at, at that point um, and paying that super premium price? doesn't necessarily mean you're getting a super premium food. And so, um, you know, what people can do additionally, if they're looking for certain components and you, you, you actually see it uh, a lot in the pet smarts and, and independents, um, they'll tell you they, you know, they hate it because, uh, you know, they always have to face the products properly, right? The front of the packaging facing out or, or front of packaging facing up on the size of the bag. But what a lot of people will do will, They'll take, uh, you know, two or three different foods and they'll compare the back and look at the ingredients. Um, and so, you know, when you're looking at it, uh, you know, is it an ingredient that you would want to eat yourself? Um, and that's usually how, you know, how I say it, or you're going to feel bad about feeding it. And again, you know, a grocery store shopper is going to be different than, you know, a mom and pop retailer shopper um, because when you're in that grocery store you're you're looking for value right and there's nothing wrong with that 
Um, and chances are you're going to compare and probably buy the 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 cheaper food, and and that's the right decision for those people. But um, you know, what you really got to start looking at is okay, how many how many times do I see pea on a label? Um, how many times do I see a grain on a label? Um, and you know, if they did quick math. Um, they could also figure out how much carbohydrate is in that food versus, you know, um, protein um, and, and things of that nature. And so, you know, with those different resources that I mentioned, you know, once people um, do their homework and they learn, hey, you know, by looking at the guaranteed analysis, I could quickly calculate carbohydrate content, um, then they can start making the decisions. Well, what am I really getting for that super premium food? Um, are they really BSing me by putting meat first? And you know what? Then it's all, you know, hey, I, it's four different versions of peas, right? And uh, common practice with grain-free is no different than what they used to do back in the day with the grain products, where you would see meat first, and then we referred to it as grain splitting. You'd probably see rice and sorghum and corn and whatever, 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 before you got to another animal protein. Well, in the grain-free world, you see a similar practice where it could be peas, uh, pea starch, pea fiber, pea protein. <laughs> it's, uh, right? I just gave you nothing but pea sources. And, and then you'll see chicken meal well, you, or whatever meal. Um, so they're really playing a game with the consumer at that standpoint. And then the other part I always tell people is, you know, as far as being an advocate is, if there's questions you have about the food, hey, what's the taurine content of it or whatever, and you call up that food company and they tell you it's proprietary, well, then you know what? Maybe you shouldn't be feeding their food um, because you know what? If you took that food and sent it to a lab, you would know what that taurine content is. And so it's not proprietary, <laughs> right? So, uh, so Ryan, what kind of – so assuming yeah. that they can get their pet food company to give them an answer, right, Like, yeah. which is a big assumption, but assuming sure. – that that could happen. What kind of numbers is somebody looking for, for taurine or L-cartonine? Yeah. So, so the ones, so what I typically focus on is um, if you're worried about the food, especially in, in the grain free world that we live in today. Um, and, you know, and some veterinarians believe it's tied to dilated cardiomyopathy or DCM. Um, I, there's no data to show that cause and effect. Um, but what I tell people is call up the company, and if you're worried about it, ask them for total dietary fiber uh, values. And total dietary fiber is not what you're going to find on a bag. What you find on the bag is crude fiber, so they're two totally different things. If if total dietary if total dietary fiber exceeds um, 10 to 12 percent on an analyzed basis, not predicted, but they actually went and tested it. Then I would ask them, okay, what's your, do you supplement taurine or what is your analyzed taurine levels in there? Um, and typically most foods when they're supplementing in taurine will come in at probably about 1500 parts per million or 0.15% um, or 0.1, um, usually somewhere in that range. Obviously digestibility will play a role in that. Um, and if you're looking for carnitine, typically if they're adding it to the food, um, or again, with taurine, typically they are too, they'll actually guarantee it on the label. Um, and so if you're concerned look for the guarantees, if they don't have guarantees then call and ask most of the time, carnitine will, will range anywhere when it's supplemented from 150 parts per million to 300 parts per million. Um, and that depends on, um, you know, in the case of carnitine, if it's a weight management food or not. 
But if you're feeding a, a large breed formula, you should be able to see carnitine and taurine as ingredients in that ingredient statement. Um, if you don't see them, I frankly, I wouldn't feed them as a large breed formula if it's kibble. Okay. Can you maybe give us, because for our, re, our listeners who may not uh, know the purpose of taurine and carnitine, could you tell us why they're important to be in your dog food, especially if you have a large breed? Yeah. So, um, taurine has a couple roles, but one of them is if it's, uh, and carnitine. Carnitine, um, is typically added to weight management foods and senior foods, um, as well as large breed because it helps with fat burning, but it also aids, um, with the muscle, heart muscle in particular. Um, and it, with boxers and other breeds, They've shown that carnitine deficiency can result in dilated cardiomyopathy. In fact, um, depending, uh, you know, what school of thought your veterinarian is, um, they might even put you on a carnitine supplement, you know, the day one you bring in your boxer puppy, um, especially if you don't, you know, know the, uh, you know, genetic history on, on that critter. Um, in the case of taurine, uh, it also is tied with dilated cardiomyopathy and also um, a function of eyes as well as typically the, the things that you see go awry when you have taurine deficiency. Um, but typically, most foods, you don't have to supplement them if they have the proper building blocks there, which are typically your sulfur-containing amino acids, um, and they're highly digestible or bioavailable. And also if you have uh, quote unquote high meat content in your food. Um, so you'll see raw foods in particular, uh, you know, if, if they shouldn't in theory be adding um, taurine or carnitine because it should be coming along in, in the meat and the heart muscle um, in particular. Uh, some people will tell you, hey, you know, and, and it, I shake my head and roll my eyes with this and I've heard it too many times that it, you know, I can't laugh about it anymore is um, people recommending, hey, you know what, you need to add grains to your grain free food because, you know, it, it, because of uh, dilated cardiomyopathy. And the reality of it is, is no plant sources carry taurine, period, um, whether they're grains or not or vegetables legumes, whatever, they literally don't analyze any, any taurine in there. You're only going to get it from animal sources. Um, and so uh, with that, or obviously from the supplement taurine. And so if you're, if, if somebody's feeding a grain-free food and they're truly worried about taurine levels, um, they can always have their veterinarian measure blood taurine and they can always put them on a supplement. Um, and, for argument's sake, uh, you you know, it's pretty goof-proof to taurine supplement uh, with your vet, which at some point what happens when you meet your your status or, or your, your your needs. Um, you just make expensive urine, so you don't have to worry about, um, you know, going, going overboard on that. It's kind of like, uh, you know, vitamin C, um, you know, or, or water-soluble vitamins. It's, uh, yeah, you, you can pump yourself up with a bunch of vitamin C when – you know, things like coronavirus is going on, but you know what, you're really just making expensive urine um, at that point. So can people overdo adding too much meat or veggie to their, or fruits to their dog's food, assuming that they've researched and made sure that, you know, it's not grapes, it's not something that's toxic to dogs? Yeah, as long as it's not harmful ingredients, um, it's, it's fairly goof proof. Um, you know, if you, especially when you have the raw foods that are already pre-made, 
Um, obviously, you know, they're 100 in theory, 100% complete and balanced. Um, but if you're doing it at home, it can be tricky. Um, so you probably want to engage, um, you know, some kind of a holistic veterinarian or, or somebody who's in that, in that trade. And there's some good resources out there, um, for, for that as well. Um, but, you know, from a, a meat standpoint, you know, it, it's going to come down to price point. Uh, you know, dogs will eat until dogs will eat, but usually they're eating for a reason. Um, if you think about, uh, and I, I use my, when I had one dog as an example, um, I fed her like a cat and she, and because day one, when she was a puppy, she knew the food was there. She never overate. Um, and so you'd hear two o'clock and three o'clock in the morning, she'd be eating kibble. Um, and then she'd go back to sleep and she was lean. She was very lean. But once I introduced a second dog and there was competition for the food, you know, if that same big bowl of food, she would have woofed down immediately because, you know, she's playing in that mode of feast or famine. Right. And, um, and so the mindset changes. And so from that standpoint, it depends how you feed them, where you feed them. Um, I always feed my dogs separately, um, just so there's no food aggression, um, it, not that there would be, but I don't want to be in that situation, especially kids in the house. Um, but, you know, with regards to too much meat, the, the, the answer is no, um, especially if you're feeding it in the raw form, because actually 75 percent of it's water. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that. Um, and typically um, dogs and cats and actually other species as well they're going to eat for certain requirements for their body. You might not realize it, but they're actually will, they'll select a food over another food, given the opportunity, if it's going to meet say a methionine requirement or a different amino acid requirement. Um, and so they'll self-select to hit what their, you know, goal is, if you will. Um, but, you know, I'm sure if they had the opportunity to eat that whole chub of raw food, they, they would because they could, <laughs> but, yeah it's kind of like popcorn right or donuts right if i could exactly. if, I, if i could i would so exactly all right well, um, i have another question go ahead yep. yeah but usually like, when you're feeding the fruits and vegetables and stuff along with it they, you know they're going to eat like you eat dinner um they're going to eat for gut fill right and once you hit gut fill um and certain and there's certain fibers in those fruits and vegetables as well also figure uh, they do a trigger mechanism in the brain besides the gut fill mechanism that says hey you, you've eaten enough okay well my question is you're, you've talked a lot about raw but what yep. about somebody who wants to add a supplement for example um I was told that if I wanted that, that a good supplement for my dogs would be to take a whole chicken, put it in the crock pot, add some chicken livers, you know, whatever vegetables you may have around, cook it to the point where the bones are, are literally mushy and then grind yeah. it all up and use that as a supplement. Is that a, another way to supplement taurine and some of the other essential amino acids that they're not going to perhaps get in their kibble? Um, that you should be, uh, depending, uh, I'm assuming when they say that it's a s slow, long cook. Um, obviously mm -hmm. if it was too high, you could, you could damage a lot of that stuff because they're heat sensitive. Um, okay. but, but you could, um, there's other benefits to doing that. And so, um, when you get down to that mushy bone, um, obviously it's going to be bringing minerals and stuff like that, but there's actually, uh, added health benefits from bone broth. Um, and in essence, you're, that's, you're, you're doing that in addition right. to what you're doing. Um, okay. and so, 
you know, lots of companies, including my own, uh, um, make bone broths for, for that reason. Okay. Yeah. Well, I make bone broth too. And then, so when I'm, you know, yeah, it's, it's great. It's, it's, and sometimes if I have extra bone broth, I'll cook the chicken in the bone broth just to mm-hmm. sort of add some extra uh, nutrients. Okay. Well, that's a, another thing. Cause I think some people are also, and, and understandably so can be a little concerned about having that much raw food and how to handle it correctly and having, you know, raw food around kids and, you know, salmonella danger and, so I think yeah, you, that uh, there's, there's some cook, Yeah, you can absolutely cook it. Um, and there's a, a there's a bunch of companies out there today um, that actually do human grade cooked food, uh, even if they didn't want to do it themselves every day for their dog. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, uh, Ollie, uh, Farmer's Dog, Nom Nom, uh, Pet Plate. You know, those are just ones top of mind. Um, that do, you know, direct to, to consumer, but those are all human grade cooked foods, no different than what you'd be buying at the store in theory, because they're, hu- they're human grade ingredients, um, right. all, all the way through. Um, and so if they were worried about even feeding the raw, but wanted that raw experience, they could always go to a, a freeze dried or be, uh, a cooked human grade right. food. So, so there's not really a bunch of risk. Let's say somebody's feeding a, a good solid kibble base, adding raw and some fruits and vegetable and some raw egg or hard boiled egg and just blessing their dog. Yeah. I mean, that's fine, right? It's one of those at that point. Um, the only concern I would have is, you know, is calories going in. So just pay attention, you know, is that dog getting fat? Um, and obviously you could back down on either the kibble portion or what you're supplementing, but for you to, to give them, you know, if you're giving them even cooked vegetables, um, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, five, I'll call it a, you know, a quarter pound of vegetables isn't as the same as a quarter pound of kibble, right? There's a lot of moisture in that product. Um, right. and, and so from that standpoint, you're actually giving them probably more water than you are giving them more than you are solids and calories. Right. Right. Well, this has been really interesting, Ryan. Thank you so much for joining us on your family dog. I think you've given our readers or our listeners, um, a lot to think about and, um, some really good, um, references. So we will have links to the, the two, to, uh, Linda case, as well as to the small animal. Um, I can't read my writing, uh, small, small animal. animal. Clinical, Clinical nutrition. nutrition. Okay, great. Yeah, fifth, now I can read. Yes, okay. And it's the fifth edition. The so, fifth yeah. edition. Okay. We'll make sure we have uh, links to that. Is there anything that you would like to add to say to our listeners that, about nutrition that you don't think that they hear and that they need to know? Well, I think the, the one thing that um, people need to hear and, and know is there's a lot of good foods out there um, at a lot of different price points. And so there literally is a food for everybody um, and household. Um, you know, not everybody is going to be a believer in raw. Not everybody's going to believe be a believer in human grade or organic or whatever. But there is a segment for you in there. And once you get down the basic nutrition concepts and know what to look for on labels, um, again, that's when you become your own advocate. Um, and I always say, if you want to go out and have a nice evening out with friends and family, 
uh, don't talk religion, don't talk politics, and don't talk pet food. So sometimes <laughs> it's good to, you know, what, what you're feeding, you keep to yourself. Uh, because if you have somebody who, uh, for example, believes in certified humane uh, meats, um, you know, they're, they're going to become advocates and it's going to be a long night for whoever's sitting next to them. Um, and if you believe, you know, all the other stuff is crap and kibble's great, um, you know, they're going to come after you too. So it's one of those things that it's an emotional discussion. Um, and mainly because um, people know, regardless of what they're feeding, that they're doing well for their pet. They don't want to be told that they're harming their pet. And a lot of people need to keep that in mind. Um, so it's not necessarily an argument about whose food's better. People need to take a step back and realize what you're saying is you're treating your dog badly and I'm treating my dog better. And that's where the emotion comes into the conversation versus the, the science and education part of it. Very, well, good, advice. That, it, Very good advice. Yeah, great. Like that's great advice. And on that vein, I'd really like to to have you come back to your far, your family dog again and have just a straight up conversation about dilated cardiomyelopathy and DCM and kind of all of the banter and um, excitability <laughs> that's that's currently <laughs> swirling around that topic. So I hope you'll be willing to come back and chat with us about that next time. Absolutely. Anytime. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.